Since we received the smudge of the cross on our foreheads on Ash Wednesday, we've been moving through Lent and toward this Holy Week. And now that we're here and we're listening to Luke's gospel as it unfolds, we come to understand that much about this week, and more particularly about this day, was quite unholy. Today we sit somewhat uncomfortably and contemplate the overwhelming consequences of the day, and further, we consider the role of human actions in the day. As we move back and look at Luke's narrative, did you notice that in the discrete portion of the passage that we just heard, Jesus doesn't do or say much until he addresses the women at the end and he tells them not to cry? Instead, this passage focuses on what was done to Jesus. In this part of the story, we hear how the Roman authorities acted. We hear how the temple authorities acted. And we hear about how the people in the crowd acted. When we listen to Luke's story of Good Friday, we are absolutely struck by his emphasis on Jesus' innocence. Luke almost shouts at us, he's innocent. Pay attention, people. Luke is the only gospel writer who underscores Jesus' innocence with two trials before the Roman authorities. Pilate found Jesus not guilty of the charges and then sent Jesus to Herod for a second hearing. Herod found Jesus not guilty of the charges and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate pronounces Jesus not guilty three times. Any lawyer who got this kind of ruling in court would think it was a good day. It sounded very promising for Jesus' release. But then we experience what could be described as a perfect storm around Jesus, which sealed his earthly fate. When Pilate gathers the chief priests, the leaders, and the people together to give him his not, the not guilty verdict, the collective crowd start their loud and unrelenting chorus. Away with this fellow, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. They don't even acknowledge Jesus by name and they reduce him to this fellow. Instead, they ask for Barabbas, a convicted murderer and an insurrectionist. If there truly was any fear or concern by any of Jesus' accusers that he stirred up the people and was a troublemaker, there is no shortage of irony in their request that Barabbas be released in Jesus' stead. Pilate initially pushed back with the leaders and the crowds proclaiming Jesus' innocence again, but the crowds wouldn't give up. Their cries of crucify him, crucify, were urgent and demanding. Despite his findings and Herod's findings that Jesus was not guilty of any allegation, Pilate gave in to the crowd's loud demand. He released a murderer and handed Jesus over for crucifixion. We read the text and we try to parse the words to find someone or some group to blame for this grave injustice. Can we place it on the authorities, the Roman authorities? Can we place it on the temple hierarchy? Can we just put it on the crowds? If we find someone is at fault, if we find someone is at fault, then maybe, just maybe, our own sense of justice will be appeased and we can move forward. But Luke is too smart to give us tidy and easy answers because there are none. And he understands that it's way too easy 
for us to look at one group or one faction or those with a particular ideology and, and conclude that they are the single culprit that we can blame. Luke makes it difficult to implicate any one party, but in doing this, he implicates all of the parties involved. If we attend to the text closely, we hear that the government leaders, the religious leaders, and the crowds are all implicated in the death of Jesus. If we attend to the text even more closely, we also might conclude that if any of these three groups had taken a stand against this injustice, they could have prevented his death. So what about the Roman authorities, the temple hierarchy, and the people? Do we just vilify the whole lot and go home? Maybe not so quickly. Pilate was not known for his kindness or magnanimous gestures. However, when we look at the trial of Jesus, his judgments were correct. He found the charges wrong. He found Jesus not guilty of the charges. And he found that Jesus had done absolutely nothing to warrant a death penalty against him. He even sent Jesus to Herod for a second opinion. Pilate was reaching the right decision until he faced the unruly crowds that demanded Jesus' crucifixion. When he announced that he found Jesus not guilty of any crime, they shouted him down. When he reiterated his position, he was shouted down again. When he was shouted down a third time, he relented, released Barabbas, and condemned Jesus to die. Most striking here for me is that Pilate just yielded to expediency. He knew Jesus did nothing wrong and was being set up. However, he obviously found it easier to yield to the loudest voices than to stand on any principle. Pilate caved into the expedient course of action even when he knew it was wrong and when it was deadly. Are we strangers to this behavior? The second group we tend to blame is the temple hierarchy. If we go back a few chapters in Luke, we see that they've been scheming and plotting to get Jesus out of the picture since he arrived in Jerusalem. They kept adding to the charges until finally they got the attention of the Roman authorities. They were fast and loose with the truth and clearly thought that their end justified the means. But what was the end or the outcome that the temple authorities were seeking? Could it be said that they were just attempting to protect their systems, their power, and the status quo in the temple? Were they protecting what they viewed as a system that was working just fine until this Jesus character showed up and started questioning their behavior and calling their piety into question? After all, their system had been in place for a long time, and they viewed Jesus as a threat and an upstart. Are we strangers to maintaining the status quo and power at all costs? Is this a behavior with which we are familiar and then comes for me the most perplexing of the three groups. Luke calls them the people. Who are these people that show up and start yelling, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas? Luke doesn't tell us who they are. They just appear in the narrative and are vehemently against Jesus. When my research didn't produce a satisfactory answer on who they were, I cornered one of my New Testament professors and asked him who these people were. 
His reply was simply, they were the people of Jerusalem. Are we to believe that these are the same people on Palm Sunday who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem? They seemed pretty happy then, laying down their cloaks before Jesus. If this is the same group of people, how did they turn so fickle in such a short time? Did they change their allegiance during the week because they thought Jesus required too much from them? Were they expecting a military leader to ride into town on a white steed and instead he arrived on a colt? Did Jesus just not fit their image of Messiah? How could they have turned on Jesus and why in the short period of time? Now, if these people were not the ones who supported Jesus earlier, where did the group of Jesus supporters go? Are they hiding? Are they afraid and cowering in the courtyard like Peter, denying their knowledge of and allegiance to Jesus? Or are these people an altogether different group of people, just a crowd that ignores Jesus' innocence and goes along with those that shout the loudest? Are they just unthinking people that go along with the crowd? Depending upon who these people are, they're fickle, fearful, or just plain unthinking. Are we strangers to these behaviors? When we hear this passage from Luke, we could choose to vilify all of those who were there and maybe we're justified in going that route. But perhaps we're better off if we see that they were motivated by and engaged in behaviors and attitudes that seem all too human. As people, we may seek the expedient when we know that's the wrong way to go. We may fight at all costs to maintain a status quo that we believe in to the exclusion of the harm of others. And despite our best intentions, we can be fickle in our allegiances when they challenge us and fearful to stand up for what is right. And sometimes we may just be unthinking. The psalmist who gave us Psalm 51 that we heard at the beginning of the segment seems to understand our human nature, our failings, and our sinfulness all too well when he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. A question that seems worth considering is how do we avoid these two human behaviors, characteristics, and attitudes that can wreck harm and instead engage in living a living that is more worthy of our calling as followers of Jesus? That's a good question, but it's a question for another day. Today we must consider instead how these all-too-human failings and sins have placed Jesus on the road to Golgotha.